0: All right, everyone, uh, welcome, welcome back. Uh, session number two here, which is going to be taking uh, some of the ideas, concepts, tools that uh, I talked about in session one uh, a little further with some application. Um, maybe that first session uh, seems like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a short break, but uh, just to review, just to refresh your memory about uh, what, we, what we covered in the first session. So I talked about what, what in the world is a worldview, a definition of a worldview, a simple definition, and then a more detailed one. I talked about the benefits of worldview thinking, why it's helpful as Christians to think in terms of worldviews and having our own worldview and how we apply that to the world. That caution about taking it too far. Uh, Any good thing you can you can overdo it. It's true with worldview thinking as well. So we've got to keep it in balance with other aspects of Christian discipleship. And then some tools: uh, the TAKES scheme, uh, theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. Different parts of a worldview that we can identify. And then these tools for evaluating worldviews that I talked about at the end: uh, the tool of coherence, the tool of explanation, the tool of livability and the tool of hope. Uh, The first two are more on the theoretical side, and the latter two are more on the sort of practical, everyday living, existential, personal side of things. So some of the tools uh, that we use for worldview evaluation are more what we might call head tools, dealing with the intellectual aspects of a worldview, and then there are what we might call the heart tools that speak to matters of personal fulfillment, aspirations, needs, and so forth. And we we can use all these tools in trying to press upon people uh, not only the deficiencies of their non-Christian worldview, but also the great virtues and attractions of a Christian worldview. So what are we going to talk about in the second session? Well, there are really two parts to it. In the first part, I want to talk about Two prominent non-Christian worldviews that we encounter in the world today, uh, there are a bunch of other ones that we could talk about. I, I tried to select two that I thought would be interesting to talk about and would offer good illustrations of some of the principles, um, but they're, they, they can be applied to others. Uh, but the two I want to talk about I'm going to call naturalism and pantheism, and I'll define those terms. And then I want to talk a bit about how we connect this, these worldview tools with the task of evangelism. And not just evangelism with unbelievers, but actually there's a sense in which sometimes we have to do evangelism with believers as well, you know, to remind them of the, of the truth of the gospel and to live it out more consistently. But I want to think about some of the challenges that we face today in doing evangelism in the culture as we find it now, and how uh, worldview thinking and worldview tools can be some helpful, often some, some ways forward to make progress with some of these challenges. All right. So... First, uh, a couple of prominent non-Christian worldviews. And the first of these is naturalism, naturalism. Uh, we can sum up naturalism in a basic idea, basic statement. And it's simply this. According to this worldview, the natural universe is all there is. The natural universe, that is the physical universe of space and time, what is sometimes called the cosmos. that is all there is. There's nothing supernatural. There's no God. There's no angels, no demons, no spirits, no souls. Everything that exists is fundamentally physical in nature and can be discovered and analyzed by science. So naturalism often goes hand in hand with something called scientism. Scientism is the view that science alone really gets to the bottom of things, science alone explains everything, and if something can be explained at all, then it can be explained in scientific terms, in terms of basic sort of physics and chemistry, that's ultimately what it comes down to. All aspects of human existence ultimately reduced to these things, that's naturalism. The worldview of naturalism was really uh, epitomized in the 1980s a TV series called Cosmos that was uh, presented at that time by a guy called Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was sort of a popular scientist of his day, science writer, and really a kind of an apologist for the naturalist worldview. And this this TV show, it was a big hit at the time, sort of talking about, well, you know, the natural world, but it had a sort of tagline that went at the beginning of the show, and it was this, the Cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be it 's kind of like a creed, you know I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Well, this is the naturalist creed. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be there 's nothing outside the universe, nothing needed that 's all there is naturalism goes by other names, other terms. Sometimes it's known as materialism. Some naturalists want to resist that a little bit, but materialism would be the idea that everything reduces to matter, material stuff, maybe energy and forces as well. Scientism is closely associated with it. Many naturalists would be committed to scientism as, an- as another way of thinking about their worldview. And also secular humanism um, Secular humanism is that form of humanism that wants to promote human progress and human flourishing, but in a secular environment. And Typically, secular humanism is resting upon a fundamentally naturalist view of where everything came from and where we came from and everything else. Naturalism isn't exactly the same thing as atheism. Atheism is uh, simply the view that there is no God, that God does not exist. That's the standard definition of atheism. A naturalist will be an atheist, right? If you believe that the cosmos is all there is, then a naturalist is committed to atheism. Um, There are some atheists who don't want to be naturalists. They tend to be the exception and arguably, naturalism is the most common and consistent form of atheism, and i 've encountered many atheist philosophers who say, "Yeah, basically once, you're, once you accept atheism, naturalism is the natural rest natural resting place for you to come you to, to view the world." Who would be some influential advocates of a naturalist worldview? Well, this guy you will know of him, Richard Dawkins, a uh, big promoter of uh, Darwinism, of the theory of evolution. Uh, came out with this book. I can't remember when it was. It was like 2002, three ish, thereabouts. The God Delusion. The clue's in the title, right? He thinks that belief in God is a delusion. And he's really arguing not just against religion, but for a naturalistic way of understanding ourselves and the world. Uh, so he would be a prominent uh, uh, proponent of a naturalist worldview. This guy, Sam Harris, uh, another of the so called new atheists. Um, his book, The End of Faith, came out around about the same time. He was basically unknown uh, until 9 11. And 9 11 sort of triggered him and a bunch of other people, like minded people, to sort of go on the offense against religion. Okay, religion isn't just false, it's bad. Religion is what motivates crazy people to fly planes into buildings. And The End of Faith was targeted against religion. But over the years, Uh, Harris has become a fairly well-known and influential proponent of a naturalistic worldview. Also, this guy, um, you may know that the Cosmos show was rebooted uh, a few years ago, 2014, in fact. uh, Rebooted and rebranded and was presented by this fellow, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, and uh, he is also an, uh, an advocate of a naturalistic worldview. He sort of quite thinks along the li- same lines as many of these new atheist types, and, uh, yeah, yeah, he's been critic of religion and often says things that really uh, show that he's committed to a naturalistic understanding of reality. Well, let's think a bit about the, the content of a naturalist worldview. What does the worldview of naturalism actually say about everything? What is its basic view of reality? Well, we can use our T-A-K-E-S scheme to break things down into five areas. And this is going to be a pretty compressed discussion of naturalism. If we had more time, if we wanted to go into more detail, we'd have to be more specific. But we can certainly get the gist of what naturalists will say about these five areas of theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. So let let me try and summarize and capture uh, what what would be said under these areas? What is the theology of naturalism? Well, again, uh, it's a it's a theology of denial, uh, a negative theology. Uh, according to naturalism, the ultimate reality is physical reality. Only the physical cosmos exists. This this universe, space and time. There are some naturalists who are now flirting with the idea of a multiverse. Uh, that there are other universes behind this one, but they're all understood naturalistically. So even the multiverse is basically a physical complex of stuff. Um, There are no supernatural entities. There's no God, no spirits, no souls. Some very consistent naturalists will even say there are no minds, which kind of blows your mind, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, To say that there are no minds... Because the mental can't be reduced to the physical. At least these naturalists will say, you know, you can't reduce thoughts and ideas and consciousness to matter, and so they they have to try and get rid of mind or try and reduce it to material stuff, to just brains. There are really no minds, there's just brains, and we're just biological computers, ultimately. Um, But according to naturalism, nothing exists that science can't ultimately explain, that science can't ultimately describe. Uh, Science is the benchmark. For reality, and what science tells us exists, that's reality. What about anthropology, view of human beings? Well, according to naturalists, we are entirely physical beings. We're biological organisms, we're basically highly evolved animals, and all animals just are physical. We're made of physical stuff. So we have, it's not just that we have bodies, but we are bodies. Our bodies are all there is to us there are no souls, there's no spirits, there's nothing beyond the physical. So we're entirely physical beings, and naturalism has its creation story of sorts, its creation myth, its big grand story of where we came from, and that is the standard mainstream Darwinian evolutionary story that uh, human beings are one twig, of one branch of the great evolutionary tree that has developed over millions of years. Evolution, blind, naturalistic evolution, has produced all species on Earth, including us, and everything can be ultimately explained by our our evolutionary origins. So we're highly evolved, fundamentally highly evolved apes, primates. You know, we're we're just a step up from uh, chimpanzees. Knowledge. What does naturalism have to say about knowledge? What we can know, how we know... Typically, naturalists are committed to scientism. Scientism is the view that scientific knowledge is the highest form of knowledge. Many would say it's the only true knowledge. Unless something is known scientifically, it's not really known, or at least until something is confirmed or has a scientific explanation, it doesn't count as knowledge. And this goes hand in hand with what is called empiricism. Empiricism is the view that all knowledge comes through the senses. It comes through observation. Science is based on empirical observations. We observe things. We come up with theories to explain them. But if you can't see it, hear it, touch it, smell it, taste it with the senses, uh, it's not real. It's not the subject of scientific knowledge. What about ethics? Well, certainly a naturalist will say ethics don't come from God, okay? Uh, Morality is not based on divine commandments or divine will or anything like that. There are no transcendent moral values. There are no overarching moral values over all of of the creation, uh, or all of the cosmos, Uh, ever... uh, ethics is really uh, something that is developed along with human beings. Uh, There's an evolutionary explanation for it. Certainly, there's no God who accounts for moral values. And naturalists will have different different attempts to get ethics without God or without any sort of supernatural creator or purpose, because they will say there's no ultimate purpose or meaning. So, we have to come up with our own sort of local view of ethics. And so, for a naturalist, um, e- ethics will either be a kind of utilitarianism, which says that uh, morality basically reduces to pleasure and pain. Uh, what is morally good is what maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. The greatest happiness for the greatest number is the utilitarian axiom. So just whatever maximizes human happiness or human pleasure, that, that's morally uh, right. Or subjectivist, ultimately they'll say uh, morality reduces to human personal preferences and tastes, or maybe people can come together with shared preferences and come up with their own moral systems, but they're still sort of subjectivist. Or there are the hardcore naturalists who say, yeah, morality is just an illusion, okay? We, we, we need it to sort of get by. Evolution has bequeathed it to us. But there's no reality there. There's nothing really right or wrong. That's the nihilist position, denying the reality of morality altogether. And there are some like that too. What about salvation? Do naturalists have a a view of salvation? Well, obviously not in a religious sense, but naturalists will say there are certain things wrong with the world and things that need to be put right. There are problems that need to be solved. You get different answers here, but some common ones would be people aren't happy. Uh, There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Not enough happiness, so uh, we need to do whatever is necessary to make people happier, to reduce suffering, to reduce pain, to increase Pleasure, the balance of pleasure and pain in the world. Uh, a more common view now that's developed really in the last um, few decades on the heels of the sort of uh, ecological movement is that the greatest uh, problem that we face is actually extinction. Uh, we're destroying the planet. So the problem is we're going to destroy ourselves. Or there are some who will say, actually, the bigger problem is not us, but life, life on Earth. And uh, there are some radical naturalists who say actually human beings are part of the problem. We're sort of parasites living off other creatures here in this planet. And I'm sorry, did I upset someone? <laughs> I know it's it's not a happy worldview. I'm yeah, it's, it makes makes me sad too. Yeah, um, so. You know, th- there's a problem. We're, we're destroying the planet. We're either going to destroy ourselves or we're going to destroy other important species. So, you know, we need to figure that out. What's the solution then? Well, the solution is we've got to find ways to make ourselves more happy. We can come up with, uh, with drugs uh, that will, uh, you know, make people happier. People who are depressed, who feel sad, can feel happier. Um, I read wh- one book by a naturalist who said, you know, if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling unhappy, just take Prozac. I mean, there you are. It's, it's, a, it's a chemical problem. It has a chemical solution. Uh, But there are other ways we can improve improve our happiness. We can improve our security through always science, scientific technologies. Uh, The advance of science will make the world a better place. And we don't want these religious people holding us back with their superstitious ideas about what we can and what we can't do. So science is the solution. Science will solve our problems. In short, science is the savior. There is a salvation and science is the savior. And I'm not really exaggerating because there is a kind of religious mentality behind this. Just to give you one illustration, Um, you may have seen this, but in in April of 2020, so this this is a month after sort of COVID suddenly blew up and everybody was like, whoa, what's happening? We've got a global pandemic here. April 2020, The pharmaceutical company Pfizer, of course, we're all familiar with that name now because it's one of the major vaccine manufacturers, Uh, Pfizer put out a commercial. It was like a four-minute commercial. It appeared on YouTube. It was put in a number of places, and it caught my eye. And uh, this this, um, this commercial from Pfizer was entitled Science Will Win, right? Everyone's freaking out about COVID. And here comes the pharmaceutical company says, you know, we've got a challenge here, but science will win. Science with a capital S. Science will save the day. And already, you know, they had their machinery in place to develop a vaccine. But right at the beginning, the first line of this commercial went like this. At a time when things are most uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. I mean, that's that's like a religious, you know, statement there. When, in times of uncertainty, turn to the most certain thing there is, science. Science will win. So that's uh, that's the naturalistic view of of salvation. Well, let's now uh, go to evaluation mode and think a bit about how we might apply some of those tools that I talked about in the first session, tools of evaluation to naturalism. And for the sake of time, we'll just look at two examples, and you can maybe think for yourselves about how we might apply some of the other tools. Start with tool number two, explanation explanation. Does this worldview actually explain things well? Does it give a good, credible, plausible, viable explanation of the sort of things that we take for granted, that are just obvious to us? Well, here are some things that naturalism actually struggles with. First thing is the existence of the universe, the very fact that the universe exists. Why does something exist rather than nothing? The Christian worldview has its own explanation that terminates in God as a necessary being, a self-existent being who freely chooses to create a universe. Now, that's a, that's a coherent uh, way of thinking about the, why things exist at all. But the problem for naturalism is that the universe exists, but it didn't have to exist. The universe is what philosophers call a contingent thing. It exists, but it, it isn't self-existent. It didn't have to exist. Take any physical thing, like this pointer here, It's a physical thing, it exists, but it didn't have to exist. There was no necessity to it. And what is true of any small physical thing is true of the physical universe as a whole. So why does the universe exist rather than not? The problem for the naturalist is there's nothing else out there to explain it. In principle, a naturalist can explain why the universe exists rather than not, unless they come out with some outlandish things like something coming from nothing spontaneously or nothing actually being something. I mean, there are all kinds of attempts to sort of get out of this dilemma. But can naturalism explain the existence of the universe? And not just any old universe, but the orderliness of the universe. The fact that the universe has an order, a predictability, a stability to it. There are these laws of nature that that govern how things go. And they have a beauty to them. They have a sort of mathematical elegance to them. Why is the universe the way that, why isn't it just sheer chaos? Things happening unpredictably. That's Possible, could have been that way. But why is it an orderly universe? And why is it intelligible to us? Why is it that we have the faculties now to understand things like relativity theory and particle physics and all these things? We, we have somehow been endowed with rational faculties that allow us to penetrate some of the, the most complex aspects of the universe and make some degree of rational sense of it. So why is this universe, why does it exist, why is it orderly, why is it intelligible? Naturalism can offer no good explanations to this because it is such a metaphysically impoverished worldview. Everything just comes down to physical stuff, and you can't get a lot from physical stuff alone. Tool number four, hope. That's another good one, I think, to to talk about with a naturalist. Uh, does, Does naturalism offer hope, hope for the present in the face of suffering and trials, hope for the future in terms of the threat of death that comes to us all. Well, naturalism doesn't really have a lot to offer here because on the naturalist view, everything is doomed to extinction. You know, we might be able to stave off extinction for a while, but according to the physical models of the universe, uh, the Big Bang, what began with the Big Bang, is going to... uh, end with a, with a big collapse. Uh, the universe is simply going to expand, cool down, and reach what is called heat death, where all the useful energy in the universe is used up, and everything comes to equilibrium, and there's no life and nothing, and then that's it forever. Everything is doomed to extinction. Now, many atheists try to be kind of upbeat about their naturalist worldview. Oh, you don't have the shackles of religion. You can, do, you can do what you want. You can be a free thinker and so forth. They try to present it as an upble- upbeat uh, worldview. But it's actually profoundly depressing. And many people have followed through the implications of naturalism, and it's taken them to some very dark places. It's no coincidence that we're seeing, I think, you know, skyrocketing um, cases of, of depression and suicide now because naturalism doesn't offer really any meaning, purpose, hope. Occasionally, however, you do come across an honest atheist, an honest atheist who's willing to speak candidly about the existential implications of naturalism. And one of these is the philosopher Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a uh, notorious critic of religion and of Christianity, an atheistic philosopher, but he gave a lecture which then became an essay entitled A Free Man's Worship. He believed himself to be a free man, free of religion, but it has this uh, striking a passage in it, which I just want to read for you it 's on the screen you can read along with this, but this is Russell speaking about the implications of his naturalistic worldview the The beginning of it the grammar's a little tricky, but hopefully you can you can follow it. He writes that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins... All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, of course, I disagree with him that these truths that he claims are beyond dispute this is sort of you know, rhetorical exaggeration. It's not nearly the case. But isn't that a striking idea? Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. There's a stark realism for you. In other words, what is he saying? Well, in simple terms, hopelessness is our only hope. <laughs> hopelessness is our only hope. We've got to f- build everything on these, these stark, depressing realities. That is not the kind of worldview that gives you a reason to get up in the morning. It is not. It's not a worldview that gives you a sense of dignity, of meaningfulness, of purpose in life. And so many naturalists really have to live in a sort of state of denial and uh, living according to an illusory view that doesn't fit with their worldview. Okay, well, so much for naturalism. There's a very uh, common pervasive worldview. Some people hold to it pretty rigidly. Others hold to it sort of partially in some issues and other worldviews and other issues. Uh, One of the realities of worldviews is that a lot of people are actually working with a mixture of incompatible worldviews, and part of our job is to help them disentangle them and see that they're not even thinking about the world in a consistent way. Some people are naturalists when it comes to some issues. Other issues, they're sort of superstitious Eastern mystics or postmodernists. So I'm I'm talking about these worldviews in a rather idealized sense, but there are some very consistent naturalists out there for sure. OK, let me turn to worldview number two here, a little different, although it has some commonalities, as we'll see, and that is pantheism. Pantheism. Uh, pantheism uh, comes from the Greek words meaning "all and God." OK? So pantheism literally means "all Godism," in that everything is ultimately God. Everything is ultimately divine. The basic idea, the core idea that drives pantheism, is this: all is one and all is God. All is one, and all is God. There is no creator God who is distinct from the world, who is transcendent. Rather, God and the world are ultimately one. God and nature are ultimately one. Um, There was a a famous um, enlightenment philosopher by the name of Spinoza, who was a pantheist, and uh, he referred to reality as, as God or nature. In other words, sometimes you can talk about call it God, sometimes you can call it nature, but it's basically one and the same thing. And he, was, he wasn't an Eastern religious guy, but he was, a, he was a monist and a pantheist. That was his view of God. But this is a pervasive view that you find is very common in, in certain Eastern religions, in New Age thought, and uh, it ultimately says all of reality is divine. All of reality, including us, are part of one big uh, monistic divine entity. Um, and not really a personal agent. So pantheism has historically been uh, most prominent in Eastern religions, but it has made significant inroads into Western culture through New Age writers, the New Age movement, which appeared sort of in the 60s and 70s and had its heyday uh, in maybe the 80s and 90s. And the worldview of pantheism has been reflected in many books, movies, TV shows, including this one. Some of you may have seen Uh, Avatar, Avatar. Anyone remember when this movie came out? Have a guess. Close, 2009, 2009. And of course, it was sort of groundbreaking with its uh, CGI at the time. But there are a number of themes in this movie that really fit with a pantheistic worldview. All of life is interdependent and all of life is sacred. Uh, All organisms in the universe are ultimately connected. The universe is, one, in a sense, one big living organism with some sort of spiritual aspect to it. And human beings, as well as these creatures, the Navi, are absorbed into the tree of souls when they die. So there's a sort of a doctrine of reincarnation incorporated there. We all go back into the one, and then there's new life, and it's all part of one connected whole. Um, And there was a strong... You probably picked up on this in a strong environmentalist political message, a green uh, uh, creed that accompanied this movie. You've got the bad, bad capitalists who wanted to exploit the environment and dig up this planet and so forth. And, and they're the bad guys and the good guys are those who, who want to preserve the environment and treat, treat all of nature as sacred at some level. You may be aware that um, Avatar 2 is uh, due to be released uh, coming December. It's been delayed like many of these movies have been because of COVID. But apparently Avatar 2 is on its way. And then Avatar 3, 4, and 5. Yeah, they're really going to cash in on this. Uh, we're going to get a stream of uh, more Avatar movies. It'll be interesting to see how they develop this whole, this whole worldview that underlies it. Yeah, of course, <laughs> right. You know, uh, the Hollywood studio is making lots of money out of it, right. So many many people hold to this pantheistic worldview without even knowing what it is. They wouldn't recognize the, the term pantheism, but they have a basically pantheistic view. They think that, that, that everything is ultimately divine and we're all part of one divine reality. Let me just talk briefly about some proponents of this worldview who have had some influence. Um, this guy, Deepak Chopra, Indian-born... Uh, endocrinologist, trained, medically trained, but he turned uh, to alternate, alternative medicine, became a big advocate of alternative medicine, and then really became a new age guru. Um, according to Wikipedia, that scholarly source, uh, <laughs> uh, he has written more than uh, 91 books, 21 New York Times bestsellers. His books have been translated into 43 languages. He's tol- sold tens of millions of copies worldwide. And uh, really, his whole conception of God is very much a pantheistic Eastern one. It, one of his books entitled How to Know God kind of sounds like J.I. Packer, right? Knowing God. Well, the God he wants to tell you about is not J.I. Packer's God by any means. It's, uh, uh, it's all about discovering the divine within us and within all of reality. And uh, many of the ideas and the self-improvement techniques that he has advocated um, have their roots in Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy. And interestingly, he has been a vocal critic of the worldview of naturalism. So, you know, these other non-Christian worldviews are warring against each other. He's criticized the naturalists for being too conventional, too conventionally scientific, for not recognizing that there's this spiritual divine aspect to the universe. Another uh, well-known influential advocate of pantheism is this guy, guy Eckhart Toller. His best-selling book, The Power of Now, was published in 1997, and uh, according to him, this book aims at a transformation of human consciousness to give the reader a taste of enlightenment. Again, you hear the Eastern religion coming through here. What do we need? We need enlightenment, and this book will help you to attain that enlightenment. And this this book is essentially a blend of sort of psychobabble, self-help, nonsense, and also eclectic. New Age Spirituality, Finding the Divine Within. Some people have referred to it rather dismissively as repackaged Buddhism because there's a lot of these ideas in it. But this book has sold several million copies, so it's obviously onto something. But who would you say is the most influential advocate of New Age Spirituality today, at least in recent years? I think I heard it. Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, you got it exactly right. Uh, there she is with Eckhart Toller. Uh, his success is mainly due to her. She featured his book on her influential book club. It was the book of the year, and that's what really launched him. And she has long been an advocate of all manner of New Age ideas that ultimately have a kind of pantheistic worldview behind them. Well, let's get into the details of pantheism. Again, we'll, we'll have to be brief here, we'll have to be concise. Uh, But what would the worldview of pantheism say in these five areas, the T-A-K-E-S? First of all, theology. Well, of course, this worldview has a view of God. It's not a Christian view. It's not a biblical view. It's not a monotheistic view. But rather, it's a pantheist view. (laughs) According to pantheism, of course, all is God. And typically, pantheists will say that all is one as well. It's very common for pantheism to say that unity is perfection. And so, if all is God... If all is divine and all is perfect, then all is ultimately one. And so, all divisions and, and, and diversity is ultimately an illusion. Certainly, in this worldview, there's no creator-creature distinction. There's no God and the world. There's just one, one uh, entity. Um, one Christian writer by the name of Peter Jones has referred to this as a one-circle worldview. So, whereas Christianity is, as it were, a two-circle worldview, God and the world, and the world is dependent on God. There's just one circle. God and the world and nature are all ultimately one. So that's the basic view of God. And then the anthropology goes with that. Uh, If we are part of the world, then we are essentially good because we're part of this divine reality, and we are essentially divine as well. Uh, Pantheists will either say, ultimately, there's no distinction between good and evil, or they'll say that the oneness itself is pure goodness. And if we're pe- part of that, then we're at least, we're either divine now or we have the potential to, to, to become divine. Usually, it's a matter of recognizing what we already are. That's, you know, you look within, you find the divine within, and that leads you to enlightenment. Knowledge. Well, pantheists will often say that there's a higher kind of knowledge that goes beyond scientific knowledge. Uh, Deepak Chopra is a good example of this. He trained in conventional medicine, but then discovered alternative medicine that, you know, ordinary science can't explain, but it still has proved its worth uh, through the wisdom of the ages. And so there's a lot of spiritualism and mysticism reaching a higher consciousness that transcends ordinary categories of reason. Instead of either-or thinking, you've got to find both-and thinking. This is what Eckhart Tolle says. So there's a higher consciousness that certain techniques can lead us to this transcendent, well, not really transcendent, but certainly higher, advanced, enlightened kind of knowledge beyond mere scientific knowledge. What about ethics, right and wrong? What would this worldview say in that area? Well, certainly, there's no transcendent moral values that are, as it were, over the universe and over human beings because there's no God. If there's no transcendent God, then there's no transcendent basis for moral values. So here, actually, pantheism is in the same position as naturalism. There is nothing beyond the universe that would be over it in any, with any moral authority. Um, you get different views uh, among pantheists, but it's very common for a pantheistic ethics to be radically egalitarian if everything is one, right? There's no distinctions, there's no hierarchies, no one's over anyone else. So flatten everything out, everything becomes equal with everything else. That, of course, gets applied to sexuality, to gender, and so forth, so there's a, a close fit here with some of these more radical ideas about sexuality and gender. Um, and an environmentalist ethic as well. Of course, if all nature is divine, sacred, then your object of worship is nature itself. The natural world becomes your god, and to worship is to care for the environment. So don't, don't kill animals. Eat the plants instead, and as few plants as possible. Maybe plants have feelings too. Who knows where this will go? But, you know, th- these, are, these are the sort of ethics that drive this panth- uh, are driven by this pantheistic worldview. And what about salvation? Uh, What's the problem and the solution to it? Well, very simply, the pantheist will typically say that our problem is intolerance. We're not tolerant of one another. Some people lord it over others, or they say this is better than that. People aren't tolerant of one another. They're ignorant of their true nature, of the ultimate oneness of all things, of the ultimate divinity of all things, and they're spiritually immature. And so, if those are the problems then the solutions will be tolerance, okay? Got to eradicate intolerance, replace it with tolerance. Everybody should be tolerant of everyone else, different views, different paths, different lifestyles. We should try and attain enlightenment that will take us out of the state of ignorance. We'll understand the true nature of ourselves and the world. And we can pursue spiritual transformation, spiritual maturity by various means, meditation, practices, mindfulness, on and on, all kinds of different, often often occult practices that are meant to put you in touch with this higher consciousness. Well, if that's the worldview of pantheism, and again, I've somewhat simplified and compressed things here, but, but in the main, this, this is fairly representative, let's apply some of the tools of evaluation to pantheism, and see some of the problems that you would have if you have this worldview. Tool one would be the problem of coherence, and there's Maybe a dozen different ways we could take this. But one particular point of incoherence in this worldview is the conflict between its theology and its ethics. It's always good with a worldview to look at one area and say, does that actually comport? Does it cohere with what is said in another area? On the one hand, this worldview wants to say there is no transcendent personal creator, no source of ultimate moral authority, a personal creator who determines what is right and what is wrong. But then that doesn't really comport with its ethics because a pantheist, although a pantheist may claim to be a relativist, there are always some moral absolutes there. This is true of any ethical relativist. Scratch a moral relativist and you quickly find a moral absolutist. There are certain things they're not willing to disagree about. And in this case, it's it's tolerance. Tolerance is an absolute, as I saw with once a bumper sticker saying, intolerance will not be tolerated. Presumably the person who had that bumper sticker thought that was really clever. I didn't think so. I mean, I, you know, this is flatly self-contradictory. Intolerance will not be tolerated. But tolerance is treated as an absolute. But the question is why? What obligation do we have to be tolerant? Where does that obligation come from? Why should we be tolerant? Likewise for the idea that we should respect all life. Why should we respect all life? Why should we treat life as, as sacred? Where does this moral absolute come from? If you don't have a transcendent God to ground these these absolute moral obligations that are binding on human beings, it's really anything goes. You know, you can, you can live any way you want to live because there's nothing binding over us. Indeed, if, if I'm divine, then I, I get to function like a god. You know, if God is the source of morality and I'm divine, ultimately divine, I get to I'm my own moral authority. I get to set my own standards. It collapses into radical moral anarchism. We could go on with other points, for example, where the the anthropology, uh, which is typically an evolutionary anthropology, whether that fits with ethics as well. But you can can explore this for yourself. But what about the third tool that I talked about, the livability tool? Uh, Well, again, livability... uh, there's a real problem for pantheists here, and it happens on multiple levels, but I'll just, I'll just bring out one point here. I really alluded to it a moment ago. Um, if pantheism really were lived out consistently, if, if its view of, if its theology and its anthropology were applied consistently, it would lead to outright moral anarchy, each one uh, being, you know, ruler in his own eyes, being right in his own eyes, setting his own standards. Um, because if, if all is divine and all is one, then it follows that everyone is divine, right? And that's the logic of pantheism. If all is one and all is divine, then everything and everyone is divine, is in a sense sacred. But then if, that apply, if I apply that to myself, if I'm divine, then no one is in a position to judge me or criticize me. I'm divine, There's no authority over me that gets to judge whether what I do is right or what I do is wrong. I become my own moral authority, but of course that applies to everyone else as well. Each one becomes his or her own moral authority. Likewise, if all is divine and all is one, then strictly speaking, there's no distinction even between good and evil. Once you really push this to the point of consistent monism, all is one, then even the distinction between good and evil becomes eradicated. And that's where many Eastern philosophies have ended up. They said, you know, the, the, the true oneness, even the distinction between good and evil is an illusion. Well, you know, try, try telling that to the judge when you're, you know, pulled into court for having committed a crime. Oh, you know, there's no ultimate distinction between good and evil. Aha, uh-huh, right, take him away. You know, th- you, that's not something that you can live out consistently on a day-to-day basis. And pantheists don't, of course. They make as many moral judgments as anyone else. Here's a quotation from a famous person. If all is one, then nothing is wrong. If all is one, then nothing is wrong. Anyone know who said that? Charles Manson. Charles Manson, the notorious notorious serial killer, who, by his own admission, was only working out the the moral implications of his uh, Eastern monistic worldview. And in a sense, he's right. If all is divine, if all is one, then nothing is truly wrong. And he lived that out consistently, but most people do not, thankfully. Okay, well, let me shift gears now. We've looked at a couple of worldviews, and there are others that we could look at. We would look at Islam. We could look at um, postmodernism. We could do the same sort of critique and evaluation. But now I want to turn to the question of uh, evangelism and try and uh, put some, some practical wheels on this trolley so that uh, we, can, we can think about how we can actually use this sort of stuff in practice. How is any of this worldview stuff relevant to evangelism, to the task of bringing the good news of salvation through Christ to a lost world? Well, in the first session, I pointed out that changing your worldview pretty much amounts to a religious conversion, religious conversion. Becoming a Christian certainly involves that today. In this increasingly post-Christian culture, for someone to become a believer requires an entire change of worldview. Now, in spiritual terms, of course, we cannot bring about a genuine conversion. That requires a a supernatural change of the heart and the mind. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about a genuine conversion. However, that doesn't mean that we just sit back, have nothing to do, we just pray, the Holy Spirit does His work. We do have a role to play, and that role is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and also to try to persuade people to turn to Christ in faith and repentance, there is a role for human persuasion. We see this in Scripture in a number of times, particularly in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul, uh, I would argue, he was uh, pretty reformed in his theology, had a very strong view about the necessity of divine grace for conversion, and yet he made every effort to reason with people to try to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. And uh, persuasion, in parts means giving reasons. Now, if you're asking someone, to abandon their worldview and to embrace a biblical worldview and specifically to put their trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, you need reasons you need to give someone reasons why they need to do that and our worldview, our worldview toolkit can help us um, give us, give those reasons to people to show them the reasons for the hope that we have and for the way that we see the world now let 's be honest, evangelism is hard, and it 's getting harder all the time. As the culture becomes more and more not just post-Christian but anti-Christian, it's increasingly challenging to to bring the gospel to people in a compelling way. And there are two major challenges, I think, that we face in our culture today. Uh, The first is the challenge of incomprehension. Incomprehension. I don't understand. The days of the four spiritual laws are really behind us. They, they had their day. They were important in their time. But just giving people, you know, the Roman road, some quotations from Romans and saying, you know, you're a sinner, uh, you need to be, you're under the judgment of God, you need to put your trust in Christ. That kind of message makes no sense unless you put into place a framework, a worldview, in which those gospel claims actually make sense. The gospel itself is incomprehensible unless you have a certain view of God, of human beings, of the way the world is, of the human predicament, and so forth. This is what um, D.A. Carson says. I'm sure you're familiar with D.A. Carson. knows a thing or two about uh, the Bible. So, uh, this is from his book, The Gagging of God. He says this, the good news of Jesus Christ is virtually incoherent unless it is securely set into a biblical worldview. Paul and he's talking about Paul in Athens in Acts 17, Paul felt it necessary to establish an entire framework, a framework very largely at odds with the various outlooks of paganism if the gospel of Christ was to be understood and accepted on its own terms. If we have trouble coming to terms with this, it may be because few Americans have been taught to think in terms of worldviews. What he's saying is very insightful here. He's saying that Paul recognized that these pagan Greeks they didn't have a biblical worldview or anything close to it. He actually had to go on the offense against their pagan worldview to challenge it in order to make room for the gospel that he was preaching to be understood. And in a sense, it's no different today than it was in the first century AD. So incomprehension is one challenge, and worldviews can help us with that. The gospel only makes sense in the context of a biblical worldview. But the second challenge is that of indifference. I don't care. Incomprehension, I don't understand indifference. I don't care. I imagine you found this yourself in the sort of conversations that you've had with many unbelievers. Uh, they're just not really interested. Um, they say, you know, that's that's great for you, but you know, that's just not for me. I'm not really. I, I, I just don't care about those sort of things. And that is largely a consequence of the very postmodern, now pluralistic, live and let live culture. Well, that's that's okay for you. That works for you, but it's not necessarily works for me. Very pragmatic way of thinking about things. But part of the reason for this indifference is that for the most part, people that we speak to are quite comfortable as they are. At least they think they are. They've got a certain way of viewing the world that they've become used to, and they're generally quite comfortable with it, and no one's really challenged them about it. Remember I said earlier that changing worldviews is hard. It's like moving home. It's like up and relocating to not just a new home, but actually a new part of the world. I know something about this because I moved uh, continents. I lived in the United Kingdom, and then I moved to the United States. And that was a big shift. That was a big challenge. It was a hard thing to do, and I hope I don't have to do it again. Um, But suppose I came to you in your home, whether you live in a a house or an apartment or whatever. Suppose I came to you and I said, uh, you need to move. It's time for you to move. You need to get out of this home and move to another home that I'm recommending to you. I think you'd be pretty reluctant. You'd be like, no, I'm fine where I am, thanks. You know, I'm quite comfortable here. I've lived here for a number of years. Uh, No thank you very much. But then suppose I showed you that there were some problems with your current dwelling place. Suppose I showed you that your roof is actually leaking badly and has been for years, unbeknownst to you, that your walls are filled with dry rot, that your foundations are crumbling and collapsing, and that the framework of your house is infested with termites. In fact, what I show you is that this is your house. And it's not in the good state that you thought it was. Now, if I showed you that your house is in a bad place and that there are some real problems with it, now you might be more interested in taking up the invitation that I'm putting to you. Now you might be more interested in talking about, well, what's this other home that that you have to talk about? So no one moves home unless there's good reason, unless there's really good reason, unless there's motivation. It's the same with worldviews. No one will change their worldview or even seriously consider doing so, not even consider it as a proposition, unless there's good reason to do so, unless you've, in some sense, dislodged or undermined or made them somewhat uncomfortable with the worldview that they already have. And, in fact, we can do that with some of these worldview tools. And what we can show people is actually, in a sense, They've already been squatting in another worldview. They've been living in one worldview, but they've been secretly squatting in another worldview, namely the Christian worldview, because they've been de- depending on things. They have certain assumptions about the world that don't fit with their own worldview, but really they're borrowing from a Christian worldview in order to make sense. And we understand why that is, because they're, despite what they think, they're creatures made in the image of God. God made them to live in this, in this world they 're designed for this world, and they 're wired for this world. There are certain ways of thinking, assumptions that they have that fit with reality with this Christian worldview as it, as it truly is, and our job is to sort of help them gently, respectfully, politely, kindly, to see that that is the case that their worldview doesn 't make sense of things, but that our worldview does, and that in a sense they 've been squatting in a Christian worldview the whole time so Let me finish up by giving you a sort of a a strategy um, for what I call worldview evangelism. Three steps, three basic steps for worldview evangelism, that is, for using the concept of worldviews in evangelism. There was a song, was it Three Steps to Heaven years ago? Well, this is not quite the same, but Three Steps for Worldview Evangelism. Um, How you can use your, your knowledge of worldviews to address both these challenges of incomprehension and of indifference. So here's step one. What I call worldview awareness, worldview awareness. First of all, you need to introduce the person that you're speaking to to the idea of a worldview. I mean you just got to get that concept out there in order to have a discussion about it. Now the trick is to do this in a natural way. Okay. It's not just, you know, the sort of thing you break up in casual conversation. You know you're at a party, you're talking about the, the baseball game at the weekend and then you say Hey, but enough about baseball. Let's talk about our competing worldviews. Okay, uh, yeah, time to go. You know, that's not the way to do it. There, there's, there are ways to naturally uh, turn a conversation towards the topic of a worldview. It requires a little bit of practice, a little bit of imagination. But suppose maybe you're in a conversation and it comes up that you're a Christian and um, someone says, "Well, oh, you know, that's interesting. I, I'm not really religious. And you say... Well, actually, I don't see uh, Christianity as a religion. I see Christianity more uh, uh, as a worldview. Well, that's interesting. What do you mean by worldview? Boom, and you're off. You can talk about what it is to have a Christian worldview and then say, you know, you you have a worldview. Maybe you never realized it. Let's talk about that. Or maybe you see something in the news, some terrorist atrocity carried out by some Islamic fundamentalist group that happens from time to time. And you, this comes up in conversation. Or did you hear the news about this, uh, this, this terrorist attack? And you might say, well, you know, we, we agree this is an evil act. But if you have their worldview, you could understand why someone would do something like that. Because most people can't conceive why someone would do that. You could say, well, actually, given the worldview that they have, it makes sense for them to do something and see it as morally commendable. Well, what do you mean the worldview that they have? Again, you've introduced that. You've made it the topic of the conversation. Disagreements about the abortion debate, about same-sex marriage, whatever it is, these sort of public policy issues. Again, we can turn the conversation to worldviews by saying, yeah, you know, we disagree about this, but at the end of the day, this is a surface disagreement. What we really disagree about, where the real disagreement lies, is in our underlying worldviews. Really? What do you mean by that? Again, you're up and running. You can talk about it. So really, any, any topic of conversation with a bit of skill, with a bit of tact, can be turned to the question of competing worldviews. So worldview awareness, we want to say, you know, have you ever thought about the kind of worldview that you have and how it affects the way you think about things? Step two, I call worldview analysis. Worldview analysis. This is going to be alliterated, by the way. I'm quite proud of this, so you'll you'll remember it. Worldview awareness, worldview analysis. In this step, we want to identify the other person's worldview. And we sort of do this internally by talking to them, by asking questions. Maybe mentally we're using the TAKES scheme to sort of scope out where they stand on these different issues. So we want to identify the other person's worldview by asking them questions, observing their life, seeing what is important to them, what they say, what they believe about things, the different moral views that they have, and then analyze it. Analyze it using the sort of tools for worldview evaluation that we talked about er earlier, coherence, um, explanation, livability, hope, and others that we could talk about. And what we would want to say then at this point is, well, it seems to me that your your worldview is basically this. this. You have this basic worldview... You know, if I had that worldview, I'd find it really problematic or unsatisfying because dot dot dot. Because you know, it doesn't seem to be able to explain this. Or if you live it out consistently, then you would be doing that, but no one would think of doing that, or that would be morally absurd. Uh, you know, you, you want to say, in effect, let me let me step in your shoes for a moment. Let me let me step into your worldview and tell you you know, why I would find that problematic and why I I don't think I could understand the world in those terms. So worldview analysis, uh, try and identify the other person's worldview, get them, make them more aware of it, but also point out, you know, here's some of the limitations. It it seems like you've got some problems here. And you don't have to do this didactically or or, or confrontationally and say, look, your worldview is just totally incoherent. Let me tell you why. Um, More, we want to ask questions. We want to say, well, if that was your worldview, it seems like, Your moral system would require you to do this, but you don't do that. You do this instead. I'm just wondering how you reconcile the two. Have you thought about that? You know, probing questions, getting them to see the cracks, the weaknesses in their own worldview. And then step three, worldview alternative. Worldview alternative. Now we want to present the Christian worldview. We want to explain the Christian worldview. And of course, by explaining the Christian worldview, we get the chance to talk about the gospel. Because, of course, you can't have a Christian worldview without talking about salvation. You know, what's, what's wrong with the world, how, how it's to be put right. So talk about the basics of a Christian worldview, including the gospel, as an alternative and explain how it, doesn't, how it doesn't suffer from the same kind of problems, how it actually can answer the fundamental questions about where the universe came from, why it is an orderly place, a rational place, why there are moral absolutes why we have this sense of purpose and dignity, why we are looking for fulfillment, why we long for a life beyond the, beyond the grave. And so here we're saying, you know, I, I stood in your shoes. I tried to see your worldview from the inside. Now you try and stand in my shoes. Imagine, imagine if you saw the world in these terms. Try on my worldview for size. Imagine how the world world would look if you shared a Christian worldview? Isn't it really more coherent? Doesn't it fit together better than world, your worldview? Doesn't it make more sense of the things that all of us take for granted in the world, morality, reason, beauty, the apparent design in nature, and so forth? Can you can you see how this, this worldview actually offers real fulfillment and real hope? Can you see how it answers the big questions of life in a very consistent, coherent, and satisfying way? Can you you sort of just try to see the world through those lenses for a moment. Now, I'm not saying that people are immediately going to see things. You know, the light's going to go on. As I've said, no one is going to change their worldview, and certainly no one's going to genuinely convert to Christianity um, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the whole time we do this, we pray that the Lord will use what we're saying for His glory and to bring someone to faith But I am saying that at least this can help us to make some progress. It can raise the right right sort of issues, and at least it can help people to be more aware of their presuppositions, of their fundamental assumptions, the fact that they see the world in a certain way, that they've taken for granted, that actually they've been inculcated with without ever having a really rational basis for it, and encouraging people just to try and see the Christian worldview from the inside. Again, you're going to need... Eyes of faith to truly do that, but as in terms of our task of helping people to understand the gospel, to understand how the Bible presents God, human nature, knowledge, ethics, and salvation, at least we're moving people in the right direction. And I'm certainly not saying that evangelism is just about trying to change someone's worldview, but I am saying that talking constructively imaginatively, creatively about worldviews can be a fruitful approach to evangelism in our culture today. If nothing else, it keeps the gospel at the center, because you can't talk about a Christian worldview without talking about the gospel. But also, it provides the broader context, a certain view of God, of the universe, of human nature, within which the gospel truths make sense. So, my parting advice would be, give it a try, okay? You can probably come up with better tools than I've given you here. Maybe I've inspired you to do that. But, you know, try it uh, with someone that you get into conversation with. Maybe it's an unbeliever. Maybe it's a believer who just, you know, isn't really seeing things the right way. They're wrestling with issues because they've never really been taught how to think consistently as a Christian about their life and their vocation in the world. So, that's, uh, that's some advice about how we can use this in evangelism. And of course, we can use these tools in discipleship, in counseling, other points of application as well. So I'd leave that to you to think through for yourselves. But that's uh, all I have to share with you. So Michael, over to you.